0: Praise the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you will, have a seat. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 3. We're going to be finishing out Acts 3 and moving into Acts 4 this morning. And so I invite you to turn there. today. The title is Seizing the Day, Seizing the Opportunity. We're going to be looking at how we can take advantage of the opportunities that are right in front of us and use them for good. And so oftentimes we are afraid to seize the day. We are paralyzed with analysis. We're wanting to play out the game theory of all possible outcomes. We're fearful, we're confused, we're unsure, we're timid, we're scared, And all of these things happen, but today what I want us to do is I want us to figure out how we can use normal opportunities in life to then utilize them to seize the opportunity to share about what has transformed our lives. Now, there is a term that came out a few years ago, probably about 10 years ago, maybe even, that's called a Jesus juke. So, I'm probably falling into a very niche population that remembers that. But the the Jesus juke was this opportunity that people would take when somebody would present something, and then they would turn it on a dime, not really in a helpful or encouraging way, but in a very superiority, in an elitist, in a I am holier than you way to make someone almost feel bad in the name of maybe evangelism? I'm not sure. So well, the, here's some examples. Uh, one is when the Super Bowl was coming out a few weeks ago or was happening a few weeks ago, what they would do is they would hop on Facebook, put a picture of the empty tomb in those nice watercolor pictures, you know, just how it looked. And they would put the picture of the empty tomb and they'd say, the original Super Sunday. All right, like, I, what's the point really, guys? The, or they would put on a sign on election week and they would say, for a real change, vote Jesus in your life, right? They, they want to take these opportunities. Maybe you're telling a friend, oh, yeah, I'm just having a bad day, and, and here's a Jesus juke for you. You know who really had a bad day? Jesus, when they nailed him to the cross. Or maybe, and this was my favorite, you know those little uh, around your license plate, they'll have that, like, what dealership you bought it in or, you know, whatever, not a vanity plate, but the, the holder. I don't even know what you call it. Anyways, you know what I'm talking about. Here's one. They wrote it in maybe, you know, 15-point font. Do you follow Jesus this closely? In the name of proclaiming Jesus, I don't think the intentions worked out really well, right? It, it was this superiority, I'm better than you, opportunity taken, to, to, to bring in Jesus, that's not what we're talking about. Today we're gonna to end with how we can do that in really natural ways. But what I want us to look at before we get to that is how Peter does this. See, throughout the, the book of Acts, we have watched Peter seize every opportunity that has been presented. Jesus ascends in Acts 1, the Holy Spirit descends at the beginning of Acts 2, and all these people are now speaking in languages they did not previously know and the crowd forms because they're hearing the good works of God in their own language, and Peter seizes the opportunity, and he begins to preach and says, as he corrects their misunderstanding of Jesus and calls them to repentance, and 3,000 people's lives are changed that day. They repent, they are baptized, and they believe. Then Peter is walking to the temple that we studied last week in chapter 3. He's walking to the temple, and a man is calling out for alms, for pity, for compassion, for money, for help. And Peter says, I don't have any silver and gold, but what I do have, I will give you. In the, name of the, in the power of the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And that man's life is forever transformed. He is made new as Peter seizes the opportunity in front of him. And that man we left off last week is running around the temple. He's dancing in the temple, and he's leaping for joy. And a crowd forms, and everybody is kind of confused and perplexed because what is happening And that is what brings us to verse 11. This crowd has formed. Verse 11, while he clung, he is the paralyzed man, the man that was born lame. He clung to Peter and John, and all the people were utterly astounded. They ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. He seizes the opportunity. And what does he say? Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Do you see that? Peter seizes the opportunity and he says... Why are you staring at me? Why are you looking to me? Why? Maybe even somebody else is going, hey, my, my ankle hurts. Can you fix that? And he's going, wait a second. Don't, don't look and think that I am so great. Peter immediately is going to point to the real power instead of his place in it. He's saying, I couldn't do this. I did not do this. It was Jesus. Verse 13. Let's keep going. We'll read through verse 16 there. It says, "'The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, he glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses.' And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see now and know. The faith that is through Jesus has given the man perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter says he was only healed by the power of Jesus. That is how he has been made strong. He again corrects their misunderstandings of Jesus. He says this He says, The holy and righteous one you denied, the author of life that you put to death, the sent one of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you rejected. But it's this power, the power of that man that you rejected, you denied, and you put to death. That has been what has made this man well. By faith in his name, by faith in the name of Jesus. And I got to thinking is, who had faith in that healing instance? Was it Peter that had faith? I think absolutely so. Because he knew that this man who was sitting there paralyzed could walk because he had seen it happen before, and he believed that Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, could work through him to bring healing. Peter had faith, but I also think the man that was paralyzed had faith. Because you're being offered something, you've got to believe that that is going to happen. He also had to reach his hand up, take hold, and then try to stand up. Both men here had faith that the power in Jesus' name, the power of the triune God, could make a difference. And that that God is good. Both had faith the impossible could happen. A condition that he had had since birth could be changed. That complete healing was possible. Both men had faith and healing happened. I am disappointed oftentimes when I look at my life. Because I don't know that I have that faith. That faith that God really can that faith that God really will. I would be so nervous to ever, ever, ever offer that ability to stand unless God had audibly said, go and tell that man he's going to walk. There's no way that in my current state that I would be able to have that faith because I struggle to see the grandness and greatness of God. We've talked about this a lot recently, that we are very prone to limit God. Limit what he can do, limit what is possible, limit, limit his sphere of influence. We're very quick to protect God. I think there's a lot of things we don't pray for because we don't want him not to do it, and then we've got to figure out how do we, how do we deal with he didn't answer that prayer. I think we're very prone to not want to put pressure on God. I, I don't want to put you in a bad spot here, God. But, but I'm, I'm beginning to come to the place that is it really worth worshipping a God we have to protect? Is it really worth worshipping a God who is limited? I, I don't think so. I, 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 it's not a name it, claim it mentality. It's not a he's now at my service. No. But I do want to believe and have a faith in a God that can do the impossible. And I think I've boxed him into what I think is possible. Peter had faith. The paralyzed man had faith, and they had faith, and they, were, they saw healing. Peter seizes the opportunity, and he begins to correct them. Verse 17, he says, it was this, but now he offers repentance. Verse 17, it says this, Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. Why is this interesting that he puts this up? Because in the Jewish days, if you sin in ignorance, sin by accident or sin by not knowing it was wrong, there was a sacrifice for forgiveness for that. You could repent of that. You could be forgiven of that. You could be washed of that. Deliberate sins did not have a sacrifice. There really wasn't forgiveness for deliberate sins. That's why the story of Jesus is so great, because even in our deliberate sins, he offers forgiveness. But, but he's saying, listen, guys, you acted in ignorance, but there is hope. There is a chance. Verse 18, you acted in ignorance. You didn't know, but what is verse 18? But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, and he thus fulfilled. Verse 19, repent, therefore, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. He's telling him, listen guys, you you did this wrong, but, but there's hope for you, there is forgiveness for you. Honestly, Peter is offering the same forgiveness that Jesus prayed for as he hung on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Peter is now saying, hey, here is the opportunity. You can be forgiven. You didn't know what you were doing. You were acting in ignorance. But while you acted in ignorance, let me tell you, God knew what would happen. He had prophesied this. He had foretold this. He had predicted this. God foreknew what would happen. That is what is so amazing about the crucifixion story is that God knew that if Jesus was born of the virgin, that if Jesus lived on this earth, that it would end with the cross. And he still sent him. God knew. He knew what was coming. And yet he still sent Jesus. When I look at my son, there's not much suffering that I really want to allow him to go through. Yes, I know it builds your character, and yes, I know we all need scraped knees, and we all need disappointment. But man, as his father, I want to protect him from every bit of it. I want to shield him. I want to help him. I want to bear the brunt of anything for him. It's why this story is so amazing that God knew. Think about the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. You you remember the story of Genesis chapter 22? Abraham had been waiting 25 years for a child, for an heir, for a son. And after 25 years, he gets this child born in his old age. There was no reason this should happen, but the impossible happened because God was a part of it. And then after probably 15 to 17 years of living with his son, now Abraham is well over 100 years old, God shows up to Abraham again and he says, Abraham, I want you to take that son, the son whom you love, your only son, and I want you to sacrifice him. Abraham wakes up early the next morning to begin this journey to obedience. He goes to the mountain, two or three day journey. He goes to that mountain. His son is way more physically able than he is, and so it's not that he's dragging little Isaac around. No, Isaac is bigger, stronger, and faster than him. Isaac lays down on the altar. Abraham binds his hand so he will not move. And he raises the knife. And if I'm being honest with you, when I read Genesis 22, I read that section as fast as I humanly can because I want to get to, Abraham, Abraham, do not harm the boy. Do not lay your hands on the boy or do anything for I know that you fear God seeing you will not withhold your only son. God spared Isaac, but God did not spare Jesus. His son, he allowed to go through the whole sacrifice. Peter is very clear here. You acted in ignorance, but God knew everything that would happen, and he still allowed it because he loves you that much. And He now is offering you the chance to be forgiven for the sin you have committed against His own Son. How does that matter for us? God knows. It has far-reaching implications to our daily life because God is not surprised by anything we experience in this world. God is not surprised surprised or confused by anything we are experiencing. Long before cancer showed up in your family, God knew. Long before you lost that child, God knew. Long before you lost your job, you lost your home, you lost your ability to walk, you lost your ability to drive, you lost your ability to see, God knew. God is not surprised by your condition. God is not surprised by your condition. God is not surprised or overwhelmed by your situation. No, you and I live lives surprised, confused, and overwhelmed, but our God is not. And that gives me hope because God knew, even when I act in ignorance, even when I act in rebellion, even when I do what is wrong, God knows and God has made a way. God knew and God is good in it all. Peter makes it clear, you were ignorant, but God was knowledgeable, so repent. It's the same thing he said in chapter 2. Turn away. Be forgiven. You will receive a time of refreshing, it says in verse 18. What is Peter saying? Come to the author of life that gives life. Come to the holy and righteous one that gives you his righteousness. Come and release your burdens. Come and release your anxieties. Come and release your fears. Come and be forgiven. Come and experience mercy. This is the offer of verse 19. The final few verses of this chapter, Peter will continue emphasizing the foreknowledge of God, God's plan of salvation through Jesus and how we can be a part of it, that it's always been known. But I need us to get to chapter four today um, because an abrupt shift happens. Chapter four, up until this point, it has been smooth sailing for the church, a honeymoon period in a sense. Everything's been going great, right? They get along, they're happy, puppy love, right? Everybody is funny and fun. How we all experience that honeymoon phase. And then reality hits, right? The shine wears off and selfishness shines through. Little things start to annoy you and bother you and perturb you. Because in a relationship, two imperfect people will never be perfect together. When turbulence happens, many people just run from the relationship. It's too hard, or they're not what they used to be, and so I'm out of this. But dating and then marriage and then staying marriage is about fighting through the turbulence and enduring the turbulence because commitment is stronger than feelings, because promises are deeper than your present experience. The church experiences turbulence in chapter 4, and we need to see how they respond. Verse 1. As they were speaking, or as he was speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, they came upon them. They were greatly annoyed, okay? Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them, Peter and John, put them in custody until the next day, because it was already evening. Remember, we showed up to the afternoon sacrifice. The court's already adjourned. Verse 4, but many people who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. All right, so Luke is clear. Peter is speaking when this other group shows up. They're not here to hear from him. They're here to judge him. They show up, and they don't wait for him to finish. They get so annoyed that they arrest him even while he was preaching. Notice, many still come to the faith. Many still are believing and will be baptized and will repent. But, but, but who is this group that shows up and becomes so annoyed? Why are they arrested? So who are these Sadducees? Oftentimes, we, you've probably heard of the Sadducees. Oh, you Pharisees and scribes, you Pharisees and Sadducees, you're doing it all wrong. You may think of them just like the Pharisees, but they're actually very different. The Sadducees were a group of aristocrats. What that means is they were an upper-class group of religious people that held positions and wielded their power. They didn't really follow necessarily all the rules like the Pharisees. They weren't kind of bootstraps mentality. They were kind of the fat cats of the religious system. They were a very conservative group theologically and politically. They only studied the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. They did not read the Psalms. They did not read the prophets. They did not believe in any resurrection whatsoever, that this life was final. They were happy in their current system because, under their current system, they were in power. They didn't mind Roman oppression because the Romans were on their side. They they were friends. They were friendly. So, So it was a good system for the Sadducees. And so when Jesus showed up speaking about he being the Messiah, and everybody was connecting that, they knew that in Israel, Messiah meant an overthrow of oppressors, a new kingdom forming, and this new Israel growing out of that. They didn't want any of that to happen. They liked life as it was because they were rich and happy and content. And so that group puts to death Jesus because we do not need him changing what's going on in our world. Now that group is looking at Peter and John and they're saying, you're talking about the same things he was talking about. Do you not remember what we did to him? So they throw them in prison for proclaiming, Jesus. They're put in jail overnight, and then verse 5, they're brought out the next morning. We're going to read this. as our last uh, passage part of the day. Verse 5 through 12. On the next day, the rulers and the elders and scribes, that gathered together with Annas, the, the high priest, Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. It's a pretty big deal. All these people are a big deal. They are here. It's powerful. Verse 7. When they had set them in their midst, they inquired. What they did is they put them on like the stage, and then they sat in a semicircle around them so everybody could see, and then Peter and John were supposed to defend themselves. They asked them the simple question, verse 7, by what power and by what name did you do this? How did this happen is their big question. How did this happen, and what are you talking about? Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today because of a good deed we did to a crippled man, and by what means this man has been healed? Verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. All right, the big question, how did you do this? What power did you use? Notice verse 8, Peter says, says, the one that you killed, but the one that God raised, he is the one that is doing this. He is the one that changes it all. And it says this in verse 8. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. We talked a few weeks back about that. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Acts 1.8. But we often forget what comes before that, the A part of that verse. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit because we are only effective witnesses when we are filled with the Holy Spirit. So often we try to witness on our own or we think it all depends on us. Peter is speaking from the power of the Holy Spirit this situation, and he says in verse 10, let it be known to all of you that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this man is standing. The one that you crucified, the one that you killed, no, God raised him just like he raised this man that couldn't walk. He points out even to the leaders in verse 11. You're supposed to be the builders of this religion. You're supposed to be the architects. You're supposed to know, and you know what you did? You rejected the stone that you needed, the cornerstone, the foundation. You rejected the one that everything else builds off of. You rejected. You missed it. And then he ends with this, and where we end today. There is salvation in no one else for no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other way to be saved. There's no other hope. There's no other option of salvation. Your works, your effort, your prestige, your position, your status, your acclaim, your reputation, they are all worthless. Only knowing Jesus and believing in what he has done is there a chance for you to be forgiven and for you to be saved. Peter seizes the day. I mean, think about it. Peter was thrown on trial. They've thrown him in prison. They say, defend yourself Peter doesn't care about defending himself. He cares about declaring Jesus. That's it. He makes known who Jesus is. That is his whole opportunity, and that is his whole mission. So today, I want you to start considering, are you seizing opportunities around you? We're going to talk a lot more about this next week. I was trying to do even more verses than this, and there was just no way. So we're going to press pause, and we're going to talk even more about it next week. But I want, to give you, I want to give you one practical way to seize the day this week, okay? And I think you could honestly do this every single day this week. David Platt calls it sewing gospel threads, all right? It is not a Jesus juke where you go, you think you had a bad day. Let me tell you about the day Jesus had. It's not, oh, you're following me closely. Do you follow Jesus that closely? No, it's not a superiority way. But it's a way of bringing in your faith in natural ways in everyday conversations. I'm going to show you two examples of how I've had an opportunity over the last uh, 10 days or so. So the first example was... um, uh, we received on Ash Wednesday, that Wednesday, we received an email um, from Cooper's teacher and just telling us of a few things that happened during that day and just kind of giving us clarity of some things. And so um, it was a way for us to check in with her and to check in with him. And that night we had had Ash Wednesday. And so we had gone through that whole service about repentance and, and acknowledging our sin and, and accepting the forgiveness that is found at the cross. And That night when we got home, we had just wiped off Cooper's ashes from his forehead, and we laid in bed, and I said, hey, buddy, I know we had a tough day. We were talking over it, and I said, I want you to pray tonight. I didn't give him any direction. And that night as he prayed, he started acknowledging and repenting of his sins, just like we had talked about during the Ash Wednesday service. And it was a really neat, like, okay, he's kind of getting it. Because that's something I'm praying really hard for him is, to acknowledge and repent of his sins, Um, and so it it was neat, and so that next day, I responded to his teacher, and I said, hey, thank you for reaching out, thank you for sharing some of what happened, Uh, we're handling it appropriately this way, but then I also want to tell you something about Cooper last night, she knows what I do, she's friends with Carlin, all of that, and I said, and I don't know her religion status or anything like that, but I said, I want to tell you a little bit about what we saw from Cooper last night, and Last night, as we were praying in bed, he started acknowledging and repenting of his sins, just like we had talked about at Ash Wednesday. We're really proud of this guy, and we see that he's growing in his faith. It wasn't forcing Jesus down somebody's throat, but it was bringing Jesus into the conversation. The second example was uh, this Wednesday. I was at breakfast, and a friend of mine is, uh, he's not a believer, and um, he's going through kind of a crazy situation right now because their house sells this week. They leased it back for one month, but they don't have a place to go at the end of March. And he's kind of freaking out and kind of not wanting to talk about it and freaking out all at the same time like we naturally do. And that afternoon or after we had met that morning, I texted him and I, I, I just said this. This is the text message I sent to him. Let's see, here it is. I said, I know you don't believe in God, but I do. So I wanted to let you know that I'm praying for you and your family as you search for a house. I'll also be keeping my eyes and ears open if I hear about anything. My prayer is that God uses this housing situation to reveal himself to my friend. I'm praying that not only does this family find a house, but this family also finds the God that saves them. It was a simple line. I know you don't, but I do. And I just want you to know that I believe that God can make a difference in your life. It wasn't forcing anything upon him. He actually said, thank you so much for that. But we are simply sowing gospel conversations. We're just sowing gospel threads into our daily life. Carl, let me know. Cooper, this week, it was neat. Sorry, this one's off the cuff. Cooper this week, they were saying things they were thankful for in his class. His answer was church. That makes you feel good when you make him be here all the time, so that was a positive, right? And then the teacher told Carlin, this was really interesting. A lot of other kids started connecting to that, and their little lines would then go to that too. He's sewing gospel threads without realizing it. By just saying this and taking opportunities. How can you do that this week? How can you naturally interject what God's teaching you or what you're learning or maybe where you're struggling or how you need to help? How can you interject his grace and his goodness into your conversations? How can you live out your faith in tangible ways that people will see? How can you seize the day? I'll be honest, I fail way more than I succeed. I get nervous. I get distracted. I chicken out often, more than I like to admit. But I do believe that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved. So I I encourage you this week. Will you sew gospel threads? Will you use the opportunities that are in front of you to declare who God is and how great he is in really natural ways? Don't Jesus juke people. Don't make them feel bad. Make them feel loved. Make them feel encouraged. Make them feel what you've experienced. Let me pray.